to the Fit for Privacy podcast with Punit Bhatia. This is the podcast for those who care about their privacy. Here, your host, Punit Bhatia, has conversations with industry leaders about their perspectives, ideas, and opinions relating to privacy, data protection, and related matters. Be aware that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not legal advice. Let us get started. Data A New Direction is an initiative from Department for Culture, Media and Sports in the UK. Well, it will reform the UK data protection legislation. And there are questions like, will this impact UK adequacy? Would it set a new standard in data protection world? Or would it degrade the GDPR level standards that the UK has through UK GDPR? What will happen? We don't know. Maybe. It will also assist businesses in complying with the GDPR or data protection legislation. But more importantly, what exactly is changing? For all these facts, let's go and talk to Dr. Hon Kwan, who is the member of UK's International Data Transfer Expert Council and also a legal counsel at Dentons. Let's go. So here we are with Kwan Hon. Hey, welcome. Welcome to the Fit for Privacy podcast. Hello, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm glad you could spare some time out of your busy schedule. And maybe let's start with a simple one. What has been your privacy journey or how did you get into privacy and how come you are involved in such great activities all along? Well, my journey to privacy is probably different from most people. I actually started out as a, a banking, debt finance, and corporate insolvency lawyer, uh, and did that for, for a number of years. And then I quit, took degrees in computing science, um, and then decided I didn't want to be a developer. So I took a tech law master's, during which I was recruited to a cloud computing law academic project. So I did that, uh, and that covered a, quite a lot of cloud-related law, including data protection. And I realized I was really interested in data protection. And um, I did my PhD while I was doing that work. And um, towards the end, um, I was running out of my funding. So I took a part-time job in data protection while I was finishing my PhD. And then I've carried on, once I finished the PhD, I've carried on in practice um, as a data protection and tech lawyer ever since. That's wonderful. So you don't have the handicap as sometimes we call it on the technology or the cyber side because you understand the cloud and everything perfectly well. That's Yes, not, not as much as I'd like to, but certainly a lot more than most people. Yeah, I think the more you know, the more you realize that there's more to know. So there's always more to learn. Absolutely. But this uh, data, the new direction, what is this initiative all about? Because we hear so much about it, but what is it in your view? Well, the aim is to reform UK data protection laws post-Brexit. So the DCMS, the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, launched a consultation in September 2021 to try and seek views on proposals to that end. And in June 2022, the government issued its response to this consultation, taking into account um, what people had said as a result of the call for responses. And then in July, the government introduced the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill to make legislative changes to UK data protection law. So that's all in train, but it's slightly complicated in that 
it's not a consolidation. The bill is actually going to make changes to the UK GDPR, the UK Data Protection Act 2018, uh, the Privacy and Electronic Communication Regulations, and a few other laws. So mm. it is a bit hard to sort of follow through all the changes. And in fact, um, the firm I'm at currently, Denton's, has produced keeling schedules, which show the tracked changes, what these amendments are to the GDPR, the UK GDPR, the Data Protection Act 2018, et cetera. So it's gonna be much easier to follow the proposed changes in context. That's wonderful. But, and before we get into what these changes are and where it improves life of citizens, I'd like to understand, why do we need it? I mean, we have had the UK GDPR, we had the Data Protection Act, we had the Freedom of Information Act, and so on. So why do we need it? What's the objective behind this new uh, initiative? Well, to summarize what Matt Warman, the Minister for Media, Data and Digital Infrastructure said, the objective is to realize the opportunities of responsible data use, while maintaining high data protection standards. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and if you look at the consultation from the government, five objectives are stated in there. And the first is reducing barriers to responsible innovation. The second is reducing burdens on businesses and delivering better outcomes for people. So reducing red tape, box ticking, making data protection laws more practical. Mm -hmm. Third is boosting trade and reducing barriers to data flows. The fourth is delivering better public services. And the fifth is reforming the information commissioner's office and modernizing that. So quite a lot of um, objectives behind this. Indeed. And I think the bar is being set very high. And we do need to make data protection easy and business friendly. There's no doubt. And with the technology coming in, we also need to accommodate. So, absolutely. Is, uh, can you help us understand what exactly is changing? What is new or different? Because we also have sometimes some perceptions, some rumors, but factually, what exactly is changing? Um, by way of overview, generally, this bill is trying to clarify and simplify UK data protection law, as you know. For example, mm -hmm. moving some of the GDPR recitals to the main body of the legislation. It's actually less far-reaching than the consultation proposals, and even the consultation response, because um, interestingly, the government, the, the consultation response in June, has pulled back from the proposals that were made in the original consultation in 2021. And even the bill as introduced in July actually differs in some respects from the June response. So it's actually been evolving quite quickly. Um, just to mention some changes in the process, for example, the original proposals wanted to exempt reverse transfers from the transfers restriction. So where data originates from elsewhere, comes to the UK, you can send it back without any issue but that's, that's no longer the case. So that's been excluded. Uh, and as another example, um, both the consultation and the response said that organizations must have a privacy management program. Yeah. That's not in the bill. Oh. So, oh, but that's not in the GDPR either, interestingly. So, that's true. You know, so, so there have been some changes, even you know, from e each stage to each stage to each stage, there have been changes. Um, and another example, a final example, um, before I move on to the substantive changes, um, 
the UK exemption for processing special category data and criminal offence related data uh, for equality of opportunity and treatment that was going to be expanded to allow bias monitoring detection and correction in AI systems, which is obviously a very good aim, but that's not in the bill. It was in the response, but it's not in the bill. And it could be that the government wants to align any AI related proposals with the white paper on AI, which is due out sometime this year, but it's not been published yet. But in terms of what's in the bill, um, what we do know from what has been published, um, there are quite a few key areas. The definition of personal data, mm -hmm. a new lawful basis for processing personal data based on legitimate interests, purpose limitation changes, changes on automated decision-making, accountability-related areas like the data protection officer, data subject rights, transfers, scientific research, changes to try and promote and, and make scientific research easier. And incidentally, there's no more requirement for appointing a UK representative. So I don't know which of these changes you would like to discuss in more detail. <laughs> we can discuss all of them, but uh, broadly speaking, are there any areas where it's making it tougher than GDPR? Because I know when we talk about making it practical, people consider that it's a little bit a relaxation or flexibility while in the end what we are saying is you are accountable do your stuff and we don't need to be consulted on each and every point but is there anything specifically on which it's making it a little bit challenging or more tougher than the gdpr a couple of possibilities uh, automated decision making as you know um and and i know that a client i work with um, a, a great client I work with um, calls Article 22, the automated decision-making provision, the worst drafted provision of GDPR, toughest to understand. So the bill tries to clarify the uh, automated decision-making provision. I think that makes sense probably because if, I mean, profiling these days is based on automated decision-making. If you combine it, you simplify it. Oh, no, the... um, it's the other way around. I mean, in the sense you can profile, but if you don't actually do anything with the profile, that shouldn't be treated as automated decision-making. Oh. If you profile people and that results in, that feeds in, results in automated decisions, then yes, it should be treated as automated decision-making. But profiling per se should not be treated as automated decision-making. But that seems to be what the, um, uh, what the bill is saying. So that's quite an interesting change, um, which will make it a bit tougher for organizations. It is in, indeed interesting because help me understand a bit. So if I'm a bank or an insurer or a telco, and I'm profiling my clients to make categories of customers so that I can offer them better service or premium service or that. So I'm not making any decisions per se. So that's going to be allowed. Well, Arguably, that is allowed under the current GDPR without yeah. being treated as automated decision making. However, yeah. under the bill, the current wording of the bill, it sounds like that's going to be treated as automated decision making, even though um, that to me that that shouldn't be the case, because if you're not making yeah. any decisions, then um, it shouldn't be treated as automated decision making. But that seems to be the way that the bill's drafting it. 
Exactly, because right now it's profiling, it's not automated decision-making. The way you describe it, it'll be dis automated decision-making while I use it to make decisions, but I don't actually make a decision yet. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, you profile to make a decision, but it's not a direct decision per se. Exactly, right? exactly. I think it'll create a lot of debate if it goes through, but let's Indeed, see. indeed. So that's one of the areas. Um, and another area possibly is transfers um, at, at appropriate safeguards as you know uh, mm -hmm. are one of the areas where you can uh, or one of the uh, con conditions or, or basis on which you can make a transfer and there is now a data protection test or, or will be under the bill that if you want to make transfers using appropriate safeguards you must also satisfy a data protection test you've got to be um, satisfied that the standards are going to be um, not materially lower. Interesting. I'm curious to understand how different it would, would it be because we right now have some what we call transfer risk assessment, yes. which is an equivalent of a DPIA, but in the context of transfer risk, in my view. But So how does that test mean different? Is it like a necessity and proportionality test? Um, sort of basically um, you can't use appropriate safeguards like standard clauses unless the controller or processor acting reasonably and proportionately considers that a data protection test is met regarding that transfer and this test is that the standard protection must not be materially lower um, in the destination country and um, the bill does say that what's reasonable and proportionate, you have to look at all the circumstances or likely circumstances of the transfer, like the nature and volume of the data transferred. So in some ways, that seems similar to the SHREMS 2 transfer impact yeah. assessments, but not identical. So, you know, question mark, um, would an assessment, a SHREMS 2 transfer impact assessment be considered good enough for the data protection test? Uh, you're certainly going to have to document it anyway, so you're not getting away from having to have accountability and document this test. So it seems quite similar, um, but not necessarily the same. Yeah, so for companies working in the or service serving in the EU as well as the UK, they will probably have to do both, it seems like, but exactly. maybe this can help extend the or ease out the decision making because hopefully it will be an objective or a binary decision making. But data transfers is, I think, already very complex. We need to simplify yeah, it, in my view. I know. And, and having possibly two different types of assessments, one for the UK, one for the EU, uh, won't necessarily help. Uh, I suspect the EU assessment is probably going to be tougher. So people are just going to do the EU assessment and assume that's going to be good enough for the UK data protection test. So essentially speaking, uh, does it have an impact on the UK adequacy or can we foresee an impact on UK adequacy? Because from an EU perspective, that's a little bit uh, an area of concern or that they observe very carefully. Uh, yeah, th that's a difficult question. And in many respects, it's as much political as a legal <laughs> question. Um, as you know, the UK is the only country which was granted adequacy with a sunset provision. So, you know, the UK adequacy expires in June 2025. The Commission could decide not to renew. It might decide to terminate earlier if it doesn't like what when the bill becomes an act. Or maybe the Court of Justice of the EU, um, somebody might complain and, and go all the way to the court to invalidate the UK adequacy decision even before 2025, who knows? I mean, some 
proposals in the original consultation were very far reaching, like uh, transfers under derogations would be allowed even if they were repetitive, etc. But the consultation response pulled back from that and the bill, as I mentioned, pulled back even further from the consultation. So hopefully um, the changes won't jeopardize adequacy. Um, Certainly a commission representative did state in a conference in July that the areas that the commission is monitoring most closely is the legitimate interest changes, changes on transfers, and the independence of the Information Commission's office. And indeed, the European Data Protection Supervisor also said, um, I think to to a magazine, we are a little afraid about the plans to change the structure of the ICO and whether it will remain sufficiently independent. But conversely, he said, actually, the UK reforms could be a kind of sandbox experiment, see how the rules could be improved. And, you know, if, the UK reforms work, maybe the commission would try to follow suit, although unlikely before 2025 when there's a new commission in place. So we really have to kind of wait and see what the final form of the bill is, uh, what regulations are issued by the Secretary of State, who has a lot of powers to issue various regulations under the bill. Um, There are uh, other laws like the uh, UK Bill of Rights on human rights law um, that might affect the UK adequacy position, not just this bill. So it's kind of, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, we will have to wait and see, and we will continue to hear the debate around transfers in that case, and also the UK adequacy. And you mentioned uh, about a new legitimate basis. Would you like to talk us through what exactly does that mean? Yes, um, this is this is not actually that far reaching as I mentioned. Um, there is a new basis of legitimate interest, uh, which is designed to avoid, for example, having to carry out a balancing test in certain situations uh, which are thought to be in the public interest and where speed is important. For example, national security, where it's important for sh- uh, child protection, um, defense, crime prevention, crime detection, etc. So um, in those uh, they're called sort of recognized legitimate interests, which, as I say, are it's not so much commercial, it's more public interest type situations. And there, um, in those situations, then you can use that new legitimate interest legal basis, recognized legitimate interest basis, uh, without having to, for example, carry out a balancing test and take the time to do that. So it will essentially be more around for public authorities. I mean, more for well, it's more for public interest type. It might not necessarily be a public authority, but for example, if a non-public uh, authority um, is asked to disclose information about children to protect them or something, uh, so it's it's more public interest type situations. You know, emergencies, uh, threats, more immediate threats. Um, but there is a, a limited list of these types of. Uh, recognize legitimate interests. The Secretary mm-hmm. of State does have power to amend it at having regard to fundamental rights and child protection. Okay, that makes sense. So it'll be interesting to read the actual text when it's finalized, but Indeed. for now, I didn't probably hear anything around the DPO because there was some debate, some discussion saying the DPO role would be made man- non-mandatory and the business heads would take it up things like that. Has there been any conclusion or no mention of that? Yes, there has been. Um, That's what I meant when I was saying that there were a few changes regarding 
general accountability issues. And okay. one of them is that no data protection officer will be required anymore. But both controllers and processors have to appoint a senior responsible individual in situations of likely high risk processing, or if they're a public body. And the senior responsible individual has to be a member of senior management. Uh, and interestingly, they've said this could be a job share, but it has to be an internal person, part of senior management, which suggests, and, and this is maybe one of the areas where it's tougher than the GDPR, you can't have an external senior responsible individual. You can't have an external consultant as a DPO, for example, or, or sorry, I should say, as a senior responsible individual. So. Yeah. Uh, that does seem to require internal people only who are part of senior management. And there are clear tasks for this individual, whether uh, depending on whether they're a controller or a processor, the, the organization, and um, some provisions about if, it's, if there's a conflict of interest, you've got to get somebody else to, to do whatever that task is. Um, but it, it's only for situations of likely high risk. That's interesting. It's not dissimilar to when you need to have a DPO. No, it is not because essentially when we see some of the banks or some of the insurance companies, especially the highly regulated industries, what they have done is they have a DPO that's more the legal function and then on the business side, they would have a data protection owner, executive, senior responsible owner or somebody who owns a privacy in context of business implementation while the legal advises them. So essentially they are formalizing that model and make it easier for what do we say, the small and medium businesses who were tending to say we've outsourced DPO. You don't outsource, you insource the you responsibility while it. consultancy is what you will outsource. Yeah, you have to insource it if um, it's likely to be high risk processing, then you have yeah. to have somebody who is part of senior management responsible for this. Indeed, but it also will create a debate around if senior management would understand the nuances of privacy that in depth and that's where the external consultancy or internal privacy expertise would still be needed. Indeed, or external law firms and, and so on. I mean, there's nothing to stop the senior responsible individual from uh, consulting external consultants or external law firms, but they can't be the senior responsible individual. This SRI has to be somebody who is part of senior management. Yeah, and I think we will see a mix of everything it being outsourced in terms of privacy expertise or input or advice. And also they're setting up a dedicated team called privacy office without having the burden of having to call it DPO. Yes, but effectively it might be similar. Yeah, I mean, essentially it pulls the responsibility towards business a rather senior, than putting it outside in, in a DPO. Yes, that's right. Although, the, of course, you would say that actually that it should be the responsibility should be in the business anyway. That's what the GDPR actually said it, but most times the DPO was having the challenge of convincing the business because they were said outside in and an independent role. Now from that independent role, it's in the business, it's a senior responsible from the management. So it integrates in while uh, yes. not calling it formally the DPO, but you do need the data protection advice or input. Yeah, well, so hopefully that will lead to positive change, who knows? But yeah. yeah, and I think it's, it's it, for me, it's a positive change. It puts where perspective where the need is. You can always say appoint a DPO and then not listen to him or her. <laughs> now you have to do it yourself. And yes, although you could have a senior 
manager and not listen to them either. <laughs> but, you know, it's, yeah. It goes a step further in making the person responsible and accountable. You can't say the DPO didn't tell me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. And there's also this uh, PECR, the FOI, and the e-privacy regulation. So are there going to be any new bills around it? Because essentially data protection is, uh, when I look at in the UK, a set of laws, set of bills that collectively deliver data protection and freedom of information to individuals. Would there be changes around it as well? Yeah, I mean, not necessarily in separate bills, but this particular bill also makes changes to the e-privacy laws, which, as you know, in the UK, um, the Privacy and Electronic Communications Regulations implement the e-privacy directive, which, of course, is still going. We haven't got the regulation yet. Um, and these regulations have been retained in the UK post-Brexit. So we've still got them, and the bill is going to amend those as well. Um, an interesting issue, uh, which is tougher than in the EU, is that for e-privacy law breaches, there's going to be GDPR level fines. So that's, you know, the cookie law, direct marketing, etc. GDPR level fines. Um, to leaven that, I suppose, there are going to be more exemptions and the like for the cookie law. Clarifying, of course, as, as we all know, it's not just about web cookies, it's mobile devices, etc. as well. But um, for analytics, collecting information for statistical purposes, uh, with a view to improving the service or en enhancing the functionality, etc., um, that, that um, is going to be allowed as an exemption. Interesting. Um it's not very clear whether third party analytics will be allowed. First party, definitely okay. But there is a prohibition about sharing that data with another person, hmm. except to enable that person to assist with improvements to the service or website. So that suggests that a third party analytics provider, you can't share with them. It's not, it would be nice if that was clear, but I think that seems to be the case first. But then that's not a radical change because in a lot of EU countries, first party analytics are allowed anyway. Yeah. So that's also going to be interesting because uh, cookies is another area, of course, transfers is one area where it seems like a mess or a challenge. Yeah. And cookies is another because it's too many uh, pop-ups, too many click, 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 and not very transparent at the moment. So it does need a change. It does need to be reformed. Yeah, I mean, another positive element is not just analytics or first party analytics, um, but, you know, cookies would be allowed for uh, user preferences and functionality. Um, and also where strictly necessary for security, although that's kind of already there. So yeah, I don't the think it's cookies. a major, I don't think the necessarily major changes. Um, mm. And also whether uh, people would say this is positive or negative, you still have to provide the user with clear and comprehensive information about the purpose of the storage and access and give them a simple way to object free of charge. So it sounds like you're still going to have banners popping up with information it won't help because i think my personal view is the cookies need to be elevated to the level of browser or operating system because i as a user use the device and then i know what i want to achieve from it in certain cases if i don't then i go into private browsing so that's the level at which it needs to be simplified but i it seems from your uh, information it's not going to happen soon 
it doesn't sound like it. I mean, th there are proposals to allow a sort of collective approach to it and mm -hmm. saying, you know, uh, being able to accept or um, reject everything um, when available technology allows. But as you know, um, attempts to find a technical solution have never really quite worked. So um, we will see what happens. But yeah, it's supposed, these changes are supposed to make life easier. But if you're still going to have banners, um, then, yeah, um, yeah. I, I suppose, you, you know, maybe a link at the bottom of the page may be good enough to provide information about the purpose of storage or access. But um, I don't think it says that clearly enough. No. And I think it's also the perspective that clear for who? For someone like you, someone like me who are in privacy, it's even us, it's not 100% clear sometimes. And then we are talking about the general user who doesn't know about privacy and even technology is a challenge for them. And that level, that's where the issue needs to be resolved and we need to make it simple. But I think there's a long way to go. There seems to be good intentions. There seem to be good uh, work being done and some experiments being done, as you mentioned, sandboxing. And it is good to make some changes and see where we can go left and where we can go right. Yes. But what exactly is then the timeline or next steps? Because from what I understand, post-consultation now a bill is drafted. That bill will go through the legislative process. Yes. So what are the next steps? How What can we expect? Because in the legislative process, usually the bill also gets redrafted. There are iterations. Indeed. Um, well, when, when the consultation response came out and people were asking when's the bill going to be introduced when's it going to happen and a DCMS representative did say in a Tech UK event I think that they wanted the bill to go through and become law by early 2023 and to meet that timeline they have to introduce the bill soon and indeed they have introduced the bill in July so it sounds like there is this push to get it through by um, early next year and the second reading is set for 5th of September. There's going to be a committee stage till November, et cetera. Mm -hmm. however, however, of course, there is a twist because much is going to depend on the UK political situation. We are going yeah. to get a new prime minister in September, whether it's Rishi Sunak or, or Liz Truss. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they both said, I mean, like Rishi Sunak has said, oh, um, the, the, the burdens, he's talked about the burdens of GDPR. Um, preventing British tech companies from innovating, public services from sharing data to prevent crime. So, um, and GDPR is not working. And, uh, you know, Liz Truss hasn't necessarily singled out the GDPR, but has promised a bonfire of e EU red tape. So <laughs> I think the, and, and even earlier than Rishi Sunak. So I, I think whoever it is that gets in may well want to make even more changes to the bill. And if they want more far-reaching changes, then it's going to take longer. Maybe there's going to be a greater risk uh, as regards UK adequacy. But, you know, who knows? We can't really tell. Um, we'll have to wait and see what happens. So two things for certain. One, earliest it can happen in early 2023. Yes. Two, we don't know how the new government brings the changes. And that may be then later. But nothing before early 2023, that's even right. in the best case. Yeah. So that was a wonderful insight into the new data protection reform in the UK. But if someone wants to contact you, get in touch with you, what's the best possible way? 
Um, easiest way is um, through my Denton's email, kwan.hon at dentons.com or, or on LinkedIn. Yeah, that's perfect. So it was wonderful to have you and thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Fit for Privacy helps you to create a culture of privacy and manage risks by creating, defining, and implementing a privacy strategy that includes delivering scenario-based training for your staff. We also help those who are looking to get certified in CIPPE, CIPM, and CIPT through on-demand courses that help you prepare and practice for certification exam. Want to know more? Visit www.fitforprivacy.com. That's www.fit, the number four, privacy.com. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, feel free to share it with a friend and write a review. If you have already done so, thank you so much. And if you did not like the show, don't bother and forget about it. Take care and stay safe. Until next time, goodbye. If you have questions or suggestions, feel free to drop an email at hello at fitforprivacy.com. That's hello at F-I-T, the number four, privacy.com.